Hello, and welcome to the 15-Minute Chronic Pain Experience Podcast. I am your host, Dina Chopolis, and I am the head pain coach and chief curator at Pain to Possibilities, where we've been transforming pain experiences since 2018. In this episode, I get to interview the lovely and talented Danielle Jardin. She is a gal that I met uh, through one of the Facebook groups that focuses on chronic pain. And I knew right away that we needed to have this conversation. So not only is it a conversation about car accidents, but more importantly, it's a conversation about recovery. So get comfortable, put your feet up, take as many pillows as you need, and let's get into it. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Danielle. I'm really excited to have you on the 15-Minute Chronic Pain Experience podcast. Part of the reason we are having you here today is because you and I connected over Facebook, and right away, we just clicked because there was so much overlap around just uh, things that we wanted to talk about. I know that you have an incredible story, and so I was excited to have you on the show so that you can not only talk about what your story is all about, but more importantly and more incredibly is the work that you have done to bring yourself to the point where you are now. So thank you for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. All right, well, let's dive in. Tell me a little bit about uh, only to what extent you feel comfortable. Yeah, so it was January 24th, 2015. And I was on my way to a gymnastics class because um, I was doing gymnastics. Uh, I was doing vaulting on horseback, which is gymnastics on horseback as well. And I was living in San Diego and it was in the middle of a Saturday, just normal day. And uh, driving my F-150 down the the large highway in San Diego and out of nowhere this crazy uh little white car just sped right by me you could immediately tell it was out of control drunk driving um I started slowing down I was in the uh, it was a four-lane highway and I started to slow down and kind of started to move over I had my truck on cruise control <clears throat> and all of a sudden the guy like slammed into the the median um we were going north and he started going south mm-hmm. and ended up behind me somehow and by this time everyone was going like 35 on the freeway instead of the normal 60 and all of a sudden I lost sight of him and he slid, I felt the impact and he pushed me a lane and a half across the fruit, the highway, um, into the bushes between the exit and the freeway. Um, and I just remember thinking, I have to, I have to stop the car. Um, it ended up being that he hit me in two locations. He hit me in the back panel by like gas tank is, And then uh, the second impact was so forceful. It was by the front left wheel well where the driver is. And he completely broke the axle in half. 
And I don't know how I was able to get the car to stop. I lost consciousness. I don't know how I got out of the car. Some people, I guess, helped me. There was a doctor on scene that had just gotten off from a local hospital. Oh my gosh. They had me on the, like on the curb by the time the ambulance got there. And I just remember like the smell of the airbag. So to this day, it's the smell Mm -hmm. and the, um, the sound when other cars, even in movies Mm -hmm. or like, I can't, I can, I can't watch anymore, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to listen now, eight Mm -hmm. years later. Wow. But before it was just the sound and like, I couldn't watch. Mm -hmm. So driving past accidents were really hard for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it took me a good, it had to have been it was a week before I could drive again, physically, but just emotionally. Yeah. And then it, I didn't drive past that accident. I didn't drive on that highway. Um, it was the 805, so it's the biggest highway in San Diego. I think it was a month before I drove past that. Right. Past that area again. Yeah. Um, I was taken to the hospital, code three, and on a C-spine and a neck brace. And then they negligently discharged me early. They didn't hold me and they were supposed to. Mm. So the whiplash that I had was 10 times worse because of the fact that they discharged me and they didn't hold me for observation overnight. Oh boy. There's a lot of layers to this. A lot of layers. (laughs) There's a lot of layers, which we're going to get into. First of all, I want to say thank you for sharing that because not speaking from experience, truthfully, but I know, and, and you and I talked about this last time, just how your voice changes, right? When you start to go yeah. back to that place. And, and that is physiologically speaking, exactly right. That's exactly what happens. We'll touch base on that later on, but I know it's probably not easy to talk about that and bring yourself back to that time. So thank you for sharing that. And the reason why we're talking about it today is that I think your story is just so very helpful. So I'm hoping not to be dragging you through the mud and, and <laughs> you know, able to bring the story out, but feel free to, to modify or change or whatever, you know, so that you are comfortable, obviously talking about it. So I wouldn't be talking about it unless I'd worked through it enough to be able to visit again. That's true. And that's why you're on this podcast. So (laughs) I'm so, so, so thankful to have you here. So there is a lot to unpack there. Obviously you you touched beautifully on the experience. Now, when they came time to diagnose biologically, what was going on with your tissues? uh, Obviously it sounded like there was whiplash. Was there a long list of things that happened beyond that or no? So it was, it was kind of crazy. So the guy that hit me walked away. I was left with, I couldn't move my left hand. And I found out two months later, they put me in a wrist brace because they couldn't figure out why mm-hmm. that I had torn ligaments in my left wrist and my hand, my mm-hmm. forefinger right mm-hmm. ligament was completely torn. They thought I wouldn't be able to move my hand again. I had a torn rotator cuff in three places. Mm-hmm. I had a separated shoulder. So the collarbone right here is actually lifted. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, it's never going to be completely right again, but I can move it now. Yes. Um, I have 
I had and I have severe nerve damage on my spine coming from my left side of my spine coming out. It's called nerve crystallization. So the nerves are actually dying, but it happens from the nerves getting pinched so hard that there's just no space left for them. So they just start to die. Right. So that will eventually go into my left shoulder and in my left arm. I was left with a nerve condition called occipital neuralgia. So the occipital nerve at the base of your neck, mm-hmm. it just from whiplash, yeah. um, from the muscles being so tight and not having it be addressed properly. Neuralgia can happen from shingles too, like that pain that people mm-hmm. have afterwards that they say that's a neuralgia. So I have it on the occipital nerve. Right. So I get it at the base of my head. And it just spreads up over my face and my left side of my head. It can go into my ear. It can go into my eye. Like it can feel like my eye is being like crushed. So you can actually see it on the left side of my face. When it happens, my face will look different. Yeah. I have multiple spine issues. Mm -hmm. So I have multiple herniated discs. Well, one of which is now replaced with a fusion. So that's a lot better. But, um, for the last eight years, it wasn't so, um, I didn't know it was this bad, but it was complete and total mush. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the impact of the accident and the airbag completely turned my C6, C7 disc, which is the last disc in your neck. So there was nothing supporting the base of my neck for for seven years. Right. Wow. Um, I have two other discs in my neck, which are herniating. So at some point they will need to be replaced. Hmm. I have a lumbar disc, which was herniated. Um, I had a surgery for that. So eventually that will herniate again, most likely. And I will have to get that replaced. Hmm. Um, I have degenerative disc disease or DDD hmm. and I have arthritis, arthritis in my spine as well. Right. And to top it all off, I have permanent sciatica nerve damage as well. Mm, wow. Okay. So that sums up the list. That's a, that's a, I like to call that a colorful health history. <laughs> lots yes. and lots of layers to it, right? That's a lot. And, and it sounds like, and I think part of the reason I was so intrigued with your story is it sounds like you've been really putting in time and effort over those seven, eight years or more, sorry, I'm losing track of time here, but you've been doing the work. So not only are you sounding like you're doing a lot of the investigative work yourself, and I think if it's okay that I mentioned this as well, I think your mother was also very, very helpful in that process as well, where she, knowing yeah. as much as she knows as a paramedic, that- my, That's my stepmother, or my, oh, stepmother. my mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law. Oh, I'm sorry. I have too many mothers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you had- They've all been very helpful. Side. Okay, great. Sounds like your character is very much that way too, that you want to learn. And so you are putting in the work to find it out. So tell me a little bit about just a summary around how you kind of one thing folded into another, how you sort of discovered what was going to help you with all of those challenges. What kind of got the ball rolling? It was a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So, well, you brought up the the mothers. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) My mother-in-law is a paramedic. So she was super helpful with bringing in like aspects that she knew. So she was much more of like the, the normal medicine that, you know, we know every day. So if I had questions about medications that I was going to be on, you know, okay, I'll take topiramate for example, it's a off label or off brand migraine medication, but it's normally for seizures. 
So is it safe for me to take? You know, I don't have seizures. Thank God. That's one of the things that I didn't get. Thank God. Um, but, you know, is it safe for me to take it for migraines? And is it safe long-term for me to take it? So she was someone that I could go to because doctors are just going to be like, yes, take this. It's going to help. Yes. They're not going to tell you long-term, right. you know, memory can be affected. Mm-hmm. Your appetite can be affected. Luckily this one, you're, it's a suppressant. Mm-hmm. So you're going to start eating less, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily a good thing either. Unlike gabapentin, where you're more likely to start gaining weight, Mm -hmm. but they don't tell you that with gabapentin, it actually starts to affect your brain in ways where your brain wants more carbs. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that it makes you gain weight. It actually makes you want to eat more sugars and carbs, and it affects your brain in different ways. Mm -hmm. Doctors aren't going to tell you that. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And no, it's not a guarantee that when you stop taking that med, that that is going to change because it affects your whole body. Mm -hmm. So it was things like that, that I went to her for, you know, uh, I think last time you were talking, there was a term that you mentioned that I'm not super familiar for, but that I was already doing. Yes. And she gave me a book that talked about it with my, my mom, my birth mom. Um, she's a therapist. So I, I had PTSD for the longest time. It's now downgraded to traumatic stress disorder, but it's, it took me a long time to work with multiple different therapists work. You know, I have a service dog, never thought I'd be someone. I thought I'd train service dogs. Yes. I thought I'd work with them. Yes. Never thought that I'd actually have one and the stigma that comes with it. Mm. That's not easy to deal with either. And so that's another mental mental aspect of it that people have to you know, deal with and people don't think about that I didn't think about it right so she was someone who really helped me mm-hmm. you know with that aspect of it and when I grew up I always watched her talk about you have to be your own advocate mm-hmm. and I, I talked with her a lot about okay I watched you do this as a kid but how do I do it myself how do I go in there with doctors right in today's atmosphere yes, and talk to them. Okay, great. You're talking about this one medication, but I don't want to be on that medication. Yes. Yes. You know, it reacts with these other three that I'm on. How can we figure out something that'll work better for me? And doctors aren't really used to a patient coming in there with 10 million questions and spending 20 minutes answering them. Absolutely not. And actually that was, I think I know we're definitely going to take that path yeah. in the podcast because I think it's worth touching on. Absolutely. I'm just going to circle back for a second because yeah. you are just summarizing this beautifully. You are very fortunate. Like you said, uh, I, I kind of, I'm going to affectionately call it the moms have, you know, are really a, a great part of your team. We talked about just so that the, our listeners will know what you and I were talking about before yes, we please. pressed record was the whole biopsychosocial model of pain. Now it's not just pain. It's also just illness in general. And what that means is all illness, all pain is biological in nature, psychological in nature and social in nature. And so we've already touched on the kind of the biological side. You've had to discover exactly what happened to your body with those tissues as a result of the accident. What you also have been doing the work on, which is a beautiful thing, is the psychological side. And thank God your mom is a therapist because she understands that that is equally as important a piece as the biological piece. And unfortunately, like you touched on as well, 
our society is really leans heavily into the biological. And you probably wouldn't be where you are today as far as understanding your pain and maybe even mitigating the pain if you didn't have that psychological piece as well. And then also the third part of it is the social piece, which, and I think I really got that sense from you just in that short conversation that we had that because you have your social supports in place, you know, you have a good, strong marriage, you are finding um, a career that is makes you tick, so to speak, really lights you up. Whereas, but when we talked before, you had said that you had a career that you had to leave, which is tough, so tough. And that's such a big part of the chronic pain experience is having to leave something (laughs) that you love doing. So we talked a little bit about the biological and we're going to stay there just for a moment. You said that you had to become your own advocate and you had that messaging right off the bat from your one of your moms. (laughs) So how do you feel you have really represented yourself, your own healthcare? How are you being your own self-advocate? I think it really happens every day. It happens in everyday life. It happens with family. It happens with doctors. It happens with friends. It it happens in everything. And I'll go back to the job because it started there. And even it started before that, I guess it started with myself when I had to let go of the life I had Mm -hmm. starts with the fact that I had to realize that I couldn't do what I had before. And it was, it was my dream job. Mm. It was, I lived what I wanted. I was an audio engineer and I was a horse trainer. You know, it was exactly what, you know, yeah. Little me dreamed of doing when I grew up, but the reality was I had to I guess the best way to say it is advocate to myself that the reality was I couldn't do it. And then the next step was, okay, where do I need to go from here Mm -hmm. to, if I ever want to ride again, or if I ever want to do audio again, if I ever want to do anything that I had before again, Mm -hmm. what do I need to do? Mm -hmm. And the answer was, I need to do the research. Mm -hmm into the injuries I have to see what the possibilities are of recovery. Cause the answer I was getting from the doctors is, is you're going to be on medication for forever mm-hmm. and give up. Oh. And there was, that wasn't an answer to me. That wasn't. No, no it's so not. Oh, good for you. And that's just why we're doing this podcast because you have taken it where it needs to go. You have said, no, there's got to be more than just the meds. Nothing wrong with the meds, not at all. But if that's the only solution, if that's only addressing the biological piece, you know, you did the work on your own with the grief piece, you know, having to leave your life behind the life you had wanted for so badly, the psychological piece around getting back in that car, seeing another white car again. I mean, all that work that you are doing, and then I'm going to kiss you for saying recovery (laughs) because that is a really important word that I just think people are scared to say. When we say recovery, recovery is different for everybody, right? Recovery could mean getting back to the horseback riding. Recovery could mean living life to its maximum with chronic pain, or for some, it actually means that their pain is severely reduced. And so it's different for everybody, but I think it's a word that offers hope. How long do you feel like it took you to actually say the word recovery? A couple of years. Yeah. I think, and I think it was really, it was hearing my husband say it and hearing him say that there were 
different, and I didn't believe him, but it was hearing him say that there were different stages of it. And I believe that now Mm -hmm. because I don't think there was ever one stage. And I was like, okay, I'm done. It was okay. I can breathe and I can take a minute to revel in the fact that I got to this point. Right. I think the first time was I went and I visited him on a training or something like that on a deployment or something. And I never thought I'd get to travel again. Like I just thought my life was over. Okay. I'm on the medication. I'm to the point where, yeah, I get migraines. Yeah. But okay. I can, I can take a week and I can be away from my doctors Mm -hmm. and I can Mm -hmm. fly on an airplane and I can enjoy myself Mm -hmm. and enjoy life for a minute. And I can forget that everything happened. Right. And then I got home and I was like, oh, wait, I did that. Yes. Okay. There might be hope. Yes. I can actually kind of like, it was like, kind of like hanging on to the end of a balloon. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, there, there might be life at the end of this. Oh, there's the hope. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And then, and then there was like another point. I don't remember what it was, but there was another point. Right. I think it was after the first time I got facet joint injections Mm -hmm. and I was actually out of pain for like, I think it was like three months. I didn't get like horrible migraines every single day. Yeah. And I, I remember turning to my husband and I was like, I don't remember what being out of pain felt like. Right. I was like, is this possible? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. I love so many things about what you just said, because just like, you know, if you were to go to see a therapist about anxiety, and there's just so much overlap when it comes to dealing with mental health and dealing with chronic pain, because they do overlap, right? A whole other conversation, (laughs) but is really just exposing yourself and allowing, giving yourself permission and space to be able to do one little step at a time. And then when you do get to that point, and you said this beautifully, when you get to that point, you kind of look back and go, oh, okay, I did that. And I came through. Okay. And it's almost seems to be that constant, take a step and then just sort of assess that's that exposure therapy. Right. And, uh, good for you. Do you feel like that's still something you, you continue to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not to say that there isn't going to be those days or those times when you have that moment and you're like, Oh, I have it. And there's hope. And then tomorrow you're going to have a horrible migraine or there's, you're going to be in pain because you pushed yourself too far because you felt amazing. Right. And you're going to have that step back, but that doesn't mean that the next day or a week later, you're going to have that moment again. Mm. But I'll say this, I'm riding horses again. (gasps) Oh my gosh. That's amazing. and, And it's not like dressage. Like I was before it's not second or third level. And I was just touching third level before, mm-hmm. but, and for those of you know, that don't know, it, it, dressage is like what you see in the Olympics. It's still riding. Oh, that's I amazing. still get to sit in the saddle and enjoy. Yeah. What I used to do. Right. You brought up two really important points. First of all, there, of course, are always going to be setbacks. That is just the norm, but it's all how you come through it. Right. And I think by you doing that semi-regular assessment, you're kind of checking in, oh, okay, how did I do there? And how did it feel? And oh, I did it. And I felt great about it. Each time you do that, you're just reinforcing, right? That behavior of, wow, 
yeah, I can actually do this. And it's also, also reinforcing and turning back that chronic pain talk, right? That mm-hmm. I don't, I can't do this. I can't, it's going to hurt too much. <laughs> I, I honestly, I knew this was going to be a great conversation. I didn't know it was going to be this good. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a great example. The psychological side, if we can tap, we touched a little bit on the biological because, and this yeah. is a beautiful segue based on what you said about getting back on the horse, <laughs> ironically, and metaphorically, you got back on that horse. When you went back into the car for that first time, you know, I'm assuming there was a whole lot of fear involved in that first ride. How did you, did you process that? And how did you work through that? The first time it was just white knuckling the steering wheel for a lot of it. At the time I was working as a nanny and I could only take so much time off because the parents needed me. I remember just thinking that I couldn't let the kids see the fear. So I remember taking roads to go get the kids. I think I was in like a Toyota, like a little car. And I just remember feeling like an, like a bug on the highway. Mm-hmm. And I still get that feeling when I'm in a car. I don't like being in cars. I still have the need to be in an, like an SUV or a truck or something. And I still have the need to like do a three inch lift on it just to get it up off mm-hmm. the ground. I remember that. I remember we just put music on and we just sang and it was just, I needed something. I needed some sort of distraction and the kids were really good at doing that. And they didn't even know they were doing it. It was the first few years. I remember I would tap the steering wheel. So whenever I would see a white car go by me, or I uh, like an accident, I'd end up just like tapping with my free foot or I'd end up tapping the steering wheel. It would be with like my thumb or my ring or something. And it was unconscious for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I think my therapist asked me what I did and we ended up turning it into like affirmations. There's another therapy that basically it's like affirmation therapy, but you tap when you're nervous. Okay. So she just turned the therapy, like turned it in what I was already doing into therapy. That was a good, like four years after the accident. Right. I can now watch accidents. Like if I'm driving, I don't, I don't get lightheaded anymore. I don't get like, I can't, I now don't have the need to like look away mm-hmm. for a long time. I had to like call somebody right. to almost keep me grounded. Yeah. Cause for a while I would almost lose time. Mm-hmm. And that was scary for me. For sure. I, like it almost got to the point where I'd stop driving because I'd be like, how'd I get home? And it just like, I think that happened twice when my husband was deployed and I, it really scared me for sure. Um, and I was like, this isn't safe. And I was talking to my therapist about not driving anymore. And that's when we turned my service, my dog into a service dog. And he started, we trained him to like tap my shoulder when we drove by accidents and he would bring me like, he'd bring me present so that I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose time. Right. And then we started having me call somebody so I wouldn't lose present, like time focus. Yes. Oh, great techniques actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so we had to we had to figure it out because it was you know it was kind of a little scary of course of course well your brain your brain is such an amazing I don't want to say machine but it's an amazing organ and all the things you're describing make complete sense sort of neurologically like your brain is set up to protect right and so it was and I'm sure this has all been explained to you but our brains are really there to protect and with chronic pain it is that constant state of protection. And unfortunately it leads to state of, oh, that's dangerous or that's dangerous when really it's not, but the brain is still telling you it's dangerous. And so you've done the work to turn that dangerous message around through distraction, through reframing, it sounds like, you know, that tapping is now some something that's effective as opposed to anxiety related. Yeah, uh, it's quite amazing. So. And of course your pup, I mean, what a great, great addition to, you know, your toolbox. That's fantastic. And as far as the social side of things, I, I already know <laughs> what you have such a great support group around you, which obviously has a huge impact in a very, very positive way. But I think what I was sensing from our conversation was earlier was that, you know, for a little while, you really didn't feel like you were getting perhaps the care or the healthcare that you needed or at least the answers that you were looking for, right? And that unfortunately is also part of the issue and that's going to amplify pain. So part of the discussion I was really looking forward to with you too is it sounds like you were really, as being your own self-advocate, you, you, you really started to ask questions. So I'd love to dig into that a little bit. You had mentioned that you just wish that there was more confidence in our chronic pain community to really ask questions, interview. And I know sometimes that can be difficult because they are either not given the time or there is sometimes pushback from the medical community to say, no, you're not allowed to ask questions. How did you circumnavigate that? In the beginning, it was a lot of, okay, this is what it is. This is what you're going to do. This is what, this is how it is. And I think the turning point for me was I was referred to a spine doctor. I had a great pain management doctor in San Diego. Um, his name was Dr. Brizzy. He was fantastic. Um, spent the time with me to explain, explain things. I'm mutophobic. So being a chronic pain patient and being mutophobic is not something that goes together. Not the best marriage. No, no, <laughs> no. He worked really well and tried to help me overcome that, okay. which was really nice. Mm-hmm. So when I started going to other doctors and being referred to other doctors who weren't as understanding, it started to open my eyes to some of the issues that are, how do I put this nicely? Well, that are chronic in our medical system, our medical, yeah, our medical system. And it, it really came to light for me when I was referred to this, this surgeon and he thought that you know, there was a disc in my neck that needed surgery. Mm-hmm. And he thought that I would be a good candidate for a fusion. Mm-hmm. And so I went and I saw this surgeon. I'd done a little bit of research, you know, what's a fusion? What are the side effects? Okay. Yeah. In yeah. about five to 10 years, you're going to need another fusion because the discs above and below become compromised mm-hmm. um, because there's more stress on them. So I went in with a couple of questions, you know, okay, how likely is it going to be that I'm going to need another fusion in five to 10 years? You know, how many in my lifetime, that type of thing, how much pain is there afterwards? What's pain management like that type of thing? Pretty normal questions. Yeah. 
we go in, he sends me for an X-ray, or an X-ray, come back. He's like, okay, I want an MRI, pokes around a bit. He comes and he goes, you're a perfect candidate for fusion, but you're too young. You're going to be on medication for the rest of your life. Give up all hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. See you when you're 50. <sighs> and I was just like, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And I tried to ask for more questions mm-hmm. and he pretty much just walked out on me. Right. He gave me like a pain cream or something like that. And, and a neck brace. Oh, and basically was like, wear this for the rest of your life. Right. Right. So just the biological piece, right. That's all, that's all they know to do is the, yeah. Bio, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just sat there and I was just so flabbergasted. I was 25, you know, this was three months after the accident. Mm-hmm. I'd seen more doctors than I'd ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. even though I'd had broken bones before. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to my car and just crying because mm-hmm. I hadn't been able to ask any questions. I'd been dismissed and I'd been told that I was going to be broken for the rest of my life. Right. And then for a 25 year old who had just walked away from a car accident and been told she should have died mm-hmm. and you know, okay, but my life had been turned upside down. Yeah. What do I do from here? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. What do I do? Yeah. And I just remember talking to my husband, just sobbing on the phone. And I remember him saying, okay, you can either give up and you can do what the doctor just said, take medication for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. or you can fight for the life you want. Mm. Oh, he's so good. He really is. Yeah. You're good together. It's not just him. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But it really was. It was like, okay, I have two paths I can take. Mm. I can either give up and I can do what the doctor just said and I can live on the couch for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. or I can fight for what I want. Right. I've never been one to give up. Amazing. So I fought for what I wanted. I went home and I cannot tell you how many hours of research I've done. Right. I looked into what a fusion was. I looked in and then I found what a disc replacement was. Mm -hmm. And disc replacements were really new back then. They were only five years and they were only being done by one doctor. It was like the Spine Institute in Texas or something like that. And so I just, I looked around, I did a ton of research on it. I saved all my research. And then I focused really hard on getting, uh, I looked into something called um, nerve ablation, which is basically where they take a soldering iron into your spine and Oh, cut your, your nerves. Very nice. Very nice. Yes. Yeah. Scary sounding. Um, and then I found something that they can do. Basically it's the same thing, but it's, I forget what it's called, but it's basically with like cold water or ice running through it. Uh Uh-huh. I don't, but I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah. So it's basically better for the body. Yeah. So I found a place that doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was in San Diego done by a really great guy, um, good doctor. And it was done by the guy who had done my first facet joint injections, mm-hmm. had to have found out how to do three facet joint injections in order to be eligible for the nerve ablation. Mm-hmm. So I was, I had a case, obviously a legal case. 
talked to my lawyer, talked to my pain management doctor, got them both on board and started towards that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my case ended right before I was eligible for it. Oh boy. Right. Mm. So, and then we moved to Colorado. So, but I had the facet joint inje- injections done, knew it worked. And when I moved to Colorado, I just had to start all over again. Right. So moved to Colorado started over again. Right. On a girl, of course, always <laughs> something, yeah. New, right? Yeah. Um. So, but I knew it worked at that point. So, but the thing with advocating for yourself is you just have to, when you're looking for doctors mm-hmm. and when you are looking at procedures and looking at things that you know, that you want for yourself, mm-hmm. I, at least for me, I approach it as I interview the doctor. Yes. And I know that's such a foreign concept for people and for doctors and doctors are are put off by it, but it's your body. Right. Right. You're the one that's going to have to live with the consequences, not the doctor. Right. And I think there is power in understanding the process. And I think I wish there was more time. I know sometimes it's a, you know, they don't have the luxury of time, but sometimes it goes beyond that and they just don't want to be questioned. So it is difficult. Absolutely. Yeah. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to the point where I, I ended up not doing the nerve ablation for multiple reasons but there was a really good reason. It was something of having to do with surgery. Like if I did the nerve ablation, then, then like I couldn't get the surgery that I wanted in the long run or something. And there's no guarantee either, unfortunately. Exactly. So I've had more facet joint injections and more medial branch blocks, which are different. Most people think they're the same, but -hmm. they're different and more trigger point injections and occipital greater injection or greater nerve injections. Yeah. And I can probably count my medical records are three, three inch binders thick. Wow. They're, they're big, but that's the other thing is getting your medical records. Most people don't think that you have a right to them. You do, you legally own your medical records. Right. Right. At least here in the States you do. Okay. Well, that's a really good point. So yes, you have to pay for the paper. Right. For them to be printed on. Yes. You do have a right to your medical records. Now, this might be a tough one to answer, but I find that when we are dealing with the biological piece, and that's you know what our medical community really is, is good at, the tricky thing about chronic pain is it is such a different beast than the acute phase, like the acute phase, meaning there's damage to the tissues, right? We are quite good at healing. Now you've been through a lot. So I would never suggest (laughs) that the psychological piece is going to override the biological piece and make everything better. Not at all what I'm about to suggest, but I'm I'm curious is at any point in your journey, has anyone ever said to you, the work that can be done psychologically, knowing that pain, this is where it gets complicated. Pain is a complicated process that there's now maybe the next stage of work to be done would be around understanding kind of what is safe for your body, what is safe for your brain uh, when it comes to pain. Has that ever been mentioned in your path? Uh, Yes. Okay. Yes. And I've always done the... I've always done that at the same time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you can tell because it is, um, 
just the way you present your story, it has all elements. So absolutely. Part of the reason I bring it up is because it's really easy for us to get caught up in the biological, the biological. Yeah. And if we neglect other pieces of the pie, let's say, let's say you address the biological piece and you're starting to get some answers and some diagnosis and some treatments and some scans, but your situation at home, and I know this is not for you, but if your situation at home is highly stressful, all those procedures are really not going to help right on the, on the long term. Yeah. And I mean, my home life is, is amazing. Yes. But that does not mean that it is always perfect. Exactly. Um, for example, my accident was in January. Mm-hmm. My husband deployed six months later. Right. So stress. <laughs> yeah. That's not a walk in the park. That is not a walk in the park, um, especially it, knowing what you've been through. So it, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a year long deployment and I don't get to know where he goes. Oh, I don't get to talk to him unless he calls me wow. um, because of what he does. And I support him a hundred percent. That's what happens on deployments. Exactly. And because I couldn't work, he had to take a deployment. My family is amazingly supportive now. Was it always that way? Did they always understand what I was going through? No, they didn't always understand what I was going through. Right. Um, there have been some really tumultuous times surrounding my accident and how things kind of worked out. It's been the mental side of it, the mental health side of it mm-hmm. has been interesting to say the least. And it, the mental side of it definitely puts a more, it can cause more pain absolutely physically and emotionally absolutely and everything that's happened I know has happened out of love but it doesn't oh yeah it definitely it's tough it's rough chronic pain especially is so complicated because there's so many systems at play and what's really fascinating about the brain is that it takes in all of that stimulation you know through your eyes your nose through your touch through the sound so you know, going back to your example of the car crash, like you said, and you said it so clearly around what you smelled, what you heard, what you felt, you know, all the senses plus, you know, anything that would have been stored in your brain from experiences in the past, all that data is coming into your brain and is being interpreted. And so, and the reason I say that is because after you and I had our initial conversation (laughs) and I hope this is okay that I'm bringing it up. Fine. Okay. Uh, you, you know, I, you, unfortunately, and your husband, as, as good as he is, avoided an accident, but it was enough, it sounded like, to create that fear, that brain to kick into hypervigilant state and for you to feel that pain all over again. Yeah. 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 So it actually was a hit and run. Oh, it was. It was. So we oh, found out goodness. we actually did get hit. Oh, boy. He manage I don't know how he managed to avoid the majority of it it could have been so much worse mm. it's actually a crazy story so yeah it was one of those it was white oh no no <laughs> I'm just laughing uh, oh good for you for laughing I'm impressed um, it was a white like Dodge cargo van oh boy those white, white cars van. white cars <laughs> um and it, he was like merging into the middle lane. Um, and he, he had looked, he had 
you know, to see what was going on and if he was clear and he was clear. And then he just happened to look again and um, just like got a glimpse of it. Mm-hmm. And he got out of the way, but in his like moving out of the way, I, I don't know whether it was the impact of the, like, like just the corner of their van hitting the back corner, right corner of our, we have a FJ. So kind of boxy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether it was like the, just the very slight impact of that or him, my husband getting out of the way, but I got whiplash again. Oh, and I hit the right side of my head on the window. <sighs> so I'm back in PT. Oh boy. Well, it's good for you for going. I, yeah. But uh, uh, my fusion is holding. Thank God. Good girl. <laughs> Good girl. And um, also, it, it also now means, unfortunately, that it's the, like you've done before, the psychological piece too, right? Where you yeah. are, yeah, where you're realizing, okay, so the speed was not enough to do it, damage, yes. And I do not want to take away from the physical pain you are feeling. But, you know, psychologically, the danger signals really amplified your pain, right? Oh, and yeah. Made it feel like it was damage all over again. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it, um, it definitely took me, it was odd because like in the moment it didn't, it, like it happened so quickly and I wasn't really aware of what was going on. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, there wasn't much of, like, I didn't panic much in the moment. Right. And then it was after the fact that all of a sudden I realized my neck really started to hurt and then my head started to hurt. And then things started to like, my panic started to happen after the fact. And then my thing, yeah. So it was like, it was like a delayed response. And then I had to drive that road two days later to go pick my husband up from the airport. Mm -hmm. And the panic happened at that time after, like when I was driving the road after I was like, okay, I really don't want to be here. Right. And, and the hard part is too, is you're on your own, <laughs> yeah. um, but the context, I'm really fascinated about the context because I'm curious at that time, do you remember what you were thinking about? I know that might be difficult to answer, but were you worrying about? It's completely blank. Okay. Okay. Like I actually, like people are asking me like the doctors, cause I drove myself to the hospital later. Cause I had to get a CT scan for my neck mm-hmm. and they're like, well, do you lose, did you lose time? My only answer is yes, because I don't remember it. I don't know if that's the, like, I'm now thinking that's the psychological aspect of it instead of protective piece. The, yeah. The fit. Yeah. Cause yeah. like, yeah. I remember driving to the point. Mm-hmm. I remember almost like, almost like flashes of it. Oh, interesting. And I remember a good like 20 seconds after it, but I don't remember the actual happening of it. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The brain's very powerful. And so yeah. it, uh, it, 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 it is meant to protect. Right. And so in that moment, that pain is telling you, Oh, I don't go, I don't want to go any further. Maybe I shouldn't be driving because I don't want to do any more damage. Yeah. Good news is you didn't have any more damage or other than soreness. So I've lost some hearing in my right ear. Oh, 
okay. I have tendonitis in it now. Like it'll ring. And every once in a while it'll like, I almost completely lose hearing in it. Like it's like, uh, it's almost if someone has like put like a muffler over it. Uh, and then the whiplash, the, the muscles are really tight, tight. Of course. Okay. Um, in a way that's it. This is going to sound crazy. I like to reframe, but your body did exactly what it was supposed to do. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that you appreciate that is only going to help your recovery. So way to go. That's pretty powerful. So thank you so much for having the courage to share your story, the two stories, not just the one. (laughs) You have a great tale to tell. Uh, You have done and you continue to do really good work. Uh, I'm I'm really thankful that you were willing to share this because I think of all the podcasts I've done, I'm, I'm just so engrossed <laughs> with your story. Um, you. I mean, with all the people I meet, I absolutely am engrossed in their stories, but you, um, you have a great tale to tell. So, well, the good news is I'm going to leave a little hanger for our listeners, but I, I am going to have you back on for another podcast because you have some really exciting things going on uh, that we can talk about when, uh, when the time comes. So thank you so, so very much, Danielle, for being a part of this. I really appreciate it. And I really do wish you continued growth through your pain experience because you're, you're doing some good work. Thank you. It's been an honor. into your spine and cut your your nerves very nice very nice sorry I jumped when you said that partly because it sounds painful but a squirrel is right beside me at my window it scared me so much I'm so sorry it's okay I don't know where he came from I got to show you this sorry I don't know if you can see him there but I can (laughs) oh my gosh like that's my window is really high I'm sorry to interrupt oh